0: pray together. Our father we ask that you would come by your holy Spirit and take your word which is living and active the Bible says sharper than a two-edged sword and that you would come and pierce our hearts and cut us to our hearts even this morning but the wounds that you give are faithful and of a friend they are not of an enemy to destroy us but like a skilled surgeon you were able to cut into our hearts, to take away our diseased unbelief and make us whole. So come do that. That's what we're asking. So that by the end of our time, we would have a greater love for Christ and that we would turn from the things we treasure and treasure him over and above all things. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Right. That's how this section of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon begun, this chapter and verses that we've been looking at for these several weeks. And after Jesus sat down and taught his disciples, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And from there, Jesus begins to rattle off one thing after another of what it looks like and means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Things that, at least at first glance, make no sense to us whatsoever. Because Jesus says things like, blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit. That is, morally and spiritually bankrupt. Who come to God and say, I got nothing, no resume to put before you. I'm bankrupt spiritually and morally. Jesus will say, blessed are those who mourn which makes no sense to us. That is, happy are those who are broken about their own sin and the sin of others and the sin in this fallen world. And he goes on to say things like, blessed are those who are persecuted. That is, those who are reviled and insulted and punched in the mouth for righteousness' sake. They're the ones who are happy in this world. And Jesus fires off all these things that sort of leave us going, this is his vision for what is a blessed life. This is his vision for who is the blessed people in the world. And then from that he transitions to say, this sad, persecuted, hungry, mourning, poor lot of people, these are the ones who are going to change the whole world. And so he'll go on to say, if you remember, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is that Jesus intends to bring about His kingdom on this earth through this lot of sad, broken, mourning, persecuted people. They're the ones that are going to change the world and bring about the kingdom of Jesus Christ into the world. And so in the next section of the sermon, Jesus says, if that's the case, if that's what I have for you, then you can't look like everyone else in the world. You've got to be different. You've got to be distinct. And so he begins to teach that they've got to be different from the religious folks and the irreligious folks. They can't look like the the irreligious pagans who don't believe in God. But they also can't look like the religious Pharisees, the leaders of those days, who believed in God. They've got to be something other. You can't blend in with the rest of the world if you're going to be the salt of the world and the light of the world. And so he calls them to be distinct. And if you remember, he did that through this long section... Where six times he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in each one of these six, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus addresses some practical issues. And shows you, here's what the religious people say about that. But here's how I need you to be thinking about that. And if you remember, that whole section began with Jesus saying, unless your righteousness that is your way of being right, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your way of being right in the world before God is better and exceeds the way that the religious people are or the irreligious people are, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus begins to lay into them Here's what I need you to be if you're going to be my citizens in this world. And with each of those, if you remember with us and if you've been tracking through this sermon with us, Jesus goes after that technicality, loophole, bare minimum righteousness that so often we all have. Now, Jesus, if all of that wasn't searching and penetrating and convicting enough, now he only takes it up a notch when we turn to chapter 6. What we do is when we finish chapter 5, we're finished with the section where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. But what Jesus is not finished doing is contrasting how his disciples and citizens will be different from everyone else in the world. How they'll be different from the people in Jerusalem and from the people in Rome. For example, in Jesus' day, you're not going to be like everyone else in religious Jerusalem, nor are you going to be like everyone else in irreligious Rome. In our day, the citizens of Jesus' kingdom won't look like everyone else in the Bible belt, nor will they look like everyone else in our city. They've got to be a third category, something altogether different. And today, Jesus, as we turn to chapter 6, pushes us to consider our interior, meaning our inside. What Jesus pushes us to consider is this, who are you really, particularly when you go about doing spiritual things, like Joe mentioned with the kids, like prayer and fasting and charitable giving. And what Jesus wants you to consider is, who are you when nobody's watching? And moreover, is that different and distinct than who you are when everybody's watching? Right, that's what he has us considering. And if we will let him, the Holy Spirit will really do a work of searching your heart. Who are you when nobody's watching? And is that different than who you are when everybody's watching? And that's what Jesus turns to address in chapter 6. We're going to be looking at 6 verses 1 through 18 in the coming weeks. But for today, I want to focus in on just verse 1. And here's what verse 1 says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Hear that again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, the first word that catches me when I read that verse is the first word, beware beware when i when i think of the word beware my mind thinks of a sign about a dangerous dog or or some imminent danger that's lurking just steps away and what i need to do is i need to take caution i need to be on guard i need to beware right in fact other translations say that the word jesus uses here is the same word for be careful be on watch be alert be on guard and what jesus is trying to convey to us is there is an imminent danger lurking just ahead of us as we seek to do what? As we seek to practice our righteousness, the verse goes on to say. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Now what's that phrase, practicing your righteousness? Well, the rest of the passage, verses 2 through 18, is going to explain to us what that is. And Jesus is going to articulate and unpack for us that practicing your righteousness is going to be things like giving charitably and praying and fasting. That's what Jesus has in mind. And what Jesus does is he takes these three spiritual disciplines as sort of representative of all spiritual things that we can do. Like any Jew in his day would have done, these three sort of speak for the whole thing. If I say to you, I'm I'm talking from head to toe, I've only named two parts, but you know I mean the whole thing. In the same way, when he says prayer... ...and fasting and giving. He's talking about the sum of all of our spiritual disciplines. And Jesus wants to say, when you do spiritual things, beware. Now, as I mentioned, we'll come to each of these spiritual disciplines... ...individually in the coming weeks. But what I would have you notice, what I think is worth noting... ...is that Jesus fully expects that all of us who are His citizens... ...will be engaged in these spiritual disciplines. Right? Now, that's obvious... But don't miss that. Don't fly past that. I'd have us consider that for a moment. That Jesus is saying that he fully anticipates and expects that if you belong to the kingdom of God, your life is going to be marked by some of these spiritual disciplines. So verse 2 will say, When you give to the needy, do it this way. Don't do it this way. Verse 5 will say, When you pray, do it this way. Don't do it this way. Verse 16, When you fast... Do it this way. Don't do it this way. And every commentator that I've read who's written about this passage loves to point out that notice Jesus is not saying if, if you pray, if you give, or if you fast, but when. As if Jesus is just going to have it as an assumption, you belong to my kingdom, of course you're going to be praying. Of course you're going to be fasting. Of course you're going to be giving. Jesus is well aware that none of those spiritual disciplines just magically appear in any of our lives. They don't just naturally come. What Jesus anticipates is that if you belong to the kingdom of God, you're going to work hard to allow these things to be a part of your life, right? Jesus doesn't say if, he says when, so that we don't think this stuff is for the varsity mature Christians, right? It's the the ones that are really spiritual are the ones who are going to pray or fast or give. Jesus says, when, as if to say, look, do you want to be in the kingdom of God? And I think all of us would say, yes, I want to be in the kingdom of God. No JV or varsity. I just want to be in the kingdom of God. Well, then for you, Jesus is anticipating, you will cultivate disciplines like prayer and fasting and giving in your life. And Jesus is anticipating none of those things are just going to pop up. Nobody stumbles into a vibrant prayer life. Nobody just accidentally walks into a disciplined fasting life. These are disciplines Jesus anticipates we're going to break a sweat in trying to cultivate. Listen to this quote by a a writer named D.A. Carson. I think he says it really well. He says, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift... ...towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control... ...and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness... ...and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness... ...and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Now, if, if you'll take a second to let that in... ...that's a good word for us. I think Carson is right when he's saying, listen... Nobody just drifts into a really spiritual life. Nobody just slides into real godliness. Nobody just accidentally stumbles into a vibrant spiritual existence. No, the the truth is our natural bent is always away from God. And so if you're not constantly fighting against that current, if you go with the flow, you're always going to find that you drift from God. You slide away from godliness. And you'll find clever excuses and justifications for your sliding, but you will slide. And so Jesus is saying, when you do these things, when you practice your righteousness. And what a good and needed word that is for us, right? I think one of the things that was so attractive about the Sermon on the Mount for us was that it allows Jesus in this season to go after that thing that might exist at Seven Mile Road that says, it's all about grace now, so let's kick up our feet and relax. Hear me, I don't want you to miss that. One of the things that was so attractive about the Sermon on the Mount is that it gives Jesus an opportunity to punch us in the mouth and cut us in the heart and say, if you've got this thought of it's all grace, so we can kick up our feet and relax, Jesus is coming to us and saying, That's, you've misunderstood this whole thing. If you're my citizen, your life is going to be marked by a cultivation of things like prayer and fasting and giving as you strive towards godliness. Listen, the good news of the Christian faith, what we call the gospel, is that none of us have a righteousness of our own. In fact, one verse that beautifully says this is is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He who knew no sin becomes sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? We've often called this the great exchange. In him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, he becomes sin for us on the cross, that in him we who were sinners might become the righteousness of God. We didn't earn it, we didn't work for it, we didn't strive for it. By faith alone, in Christ alone, we have become the righteousness of God. But this passage serves well to remind us that righteousness can't remain as a cold, stale, theological idea in our brain. It's got to be lived out in our life. You you can't have the imputed righteousness, some of us would say. Imputed righteousness of Jesus given to us as a cold doctrine tucked away neatly in our brain. Jesus is saying when you practice your righteousness, that is that it's going to be lived out in certain visible, tangible ways. When you practice your righteousness, Jesus says, beware. So here's what he's saying. The citizen of his kingdom, that woman or that man who is about Jesus and his kingdom is going to be cultivating spiritual disciplines in their life. Disciplines like prayer and giving and fasting. And when they do, they're going to beware. Beware of what? Well, the verse tells us Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus says there is a great danger, a huge beware sign, a vicious thing imminent right ahead of you as you seek to pray or fast or give. There's a huge danger and what is that? It's beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus is saying there's a great danger lurking when you do these spiritual things in front of other people. There's a great danger, a grave danger, when you do these things in front of other people. Now, the question we might then ask is, does that mean that we can never pray in front of another person? Or give with another person knowing? Or fast with someone else's knowledge? Right? I was explaining this and talking to this with my daughter. And her first question is, Dad, does that mean that we should never pray out loud? And you can see where you might think that. Because if you keep reading verses 2 through 18, Jesus seems to highlight the necessity of secrecy with these things. right? So when he says, when you give, he goes so far as to say, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's how secretive I want your giving to be. You're not going to blow trumpets and blow your own horn like the others do. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. When you pray, he says, find a room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a virtue in hidden prayer, Jesus says. Or when you fast, do not disfigure your faces and look gloomy like the hypocrites so that their fasting may be seen. But wash your face, anoint your head so that your fasting may not be seen by others, Jesus says. And so when you read all that and put that together, there's a sense in which you wonder, so is Jesus calling us to privatize all these things in such a way that no one should ever see us pray or know that we've fasted or know that we've given? And I'd say, no, that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. You see, we know that for reasons. For, for one, we know that because Jesus himself prayed in front of people. We know that Jesus prayed in secret, hidden, hidden, Far away from the crowds, but we also know Jesus prayed before people. We also know that Jesus fasted and told people that he fasted. For example, the Gospels record that Jesus fasted for 40 days in a wilderness by himself, tested and tempted by the enemy. Well, how would we know that except that Jesus told the writers of the Gospel that that happened? Or or Jesus sees a woman giving And he calls everyone's attention to her giving, down to exactly what she gave and how she gave and why she gave in comparison to how others gave. So we're not reading into this that Jesus wants these things to be done in secret in such a way that they can never be done before people. Moreover, we know that Jesus himself, just a few verses earlier, in chapter 5, if you remember, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so the same Jesus that is calling us to a radical secrecy is the same Jesus who just a few verses earlier said, let your light shine, be on display for everyone, let it be shown off so that others might see your good deeds and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And and that there is the issue. The issue is who's going to get the glory from this? You see, there's times where you and I don't want anyone to know that we're Christian. You think about your situation as a co-worker or, or all the times when you're tempted to hide. And in the times when you're tempted to hide, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You've got to shine so that others can see and know and give glory to your Father in heaven. But then there are times where you want the whole world to know you're a Christian. Like when you're in church and you're praying or you're fasting or you're giving. And you want everyone to be drawn in their attention to you. And Jesus says, when you're tempted to show off, I want you to hide. Because at the end of the day, the question is, who's going to get the glory from what you do? If you're out in the world and others might see your good works and glory goes to God, then you let your good deeds shine before men. But if your motivation is something other, then you hide that so that only God might get the glory. If you're trying to make yourself look good, you hide. So the the principle is almost, when we're tempted to hide, we ought to show. And when we're tempted to show off, we ought to hide. So that in all of those things, God alone might get the glory. And that's when you begin to realize, the issue here is not so much that what we're doing is seen by others, but whether what we're doing is in order that it might be seen by others. Do you notice that's what Jesus said? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The issue is not so much whether what you're doing is seen, as it is whether what you're doing is in order to be seen. And that's when you realize what Jesus is really getting at. Jesus is going after what's inside you. Jesus is going after why are you doing what you're doing. And that's the thing that that perhaps gets under our skin about Jesus. He's not even just interested that you do the right thing. He demands that you do it for the right reasons. The right thing done for the wrong reasons doesn't count with God. And so Jesus wants to know not just why you do what you do, but why you do what you do. And what Jesus is saying here is your motivation in all of this matters And so he's saying to us, beware, be careful, be on guard, be alert. Watch out for that tendency in all of us to put on a show. Watch out for that unseen motivation in each of us to be seen. Watch out for that invisible desire to be visible to all. Watch out for that private and hidden agenda to be publicly noticed by everyone. Watch out for that. Be on guard for that. Because Jesus is saying there is a tendency and a temptation for religious people to put on a religious show. In fact, you think about this. What's one of the biggest complaints that our non-Christian friends have have about us, about Christians, about the church? Out of all the complaints they have, one of the biggest ones that they always say is the church is full of... Nobody needs to even inform you. The church is full of hypocrites. And perhaps what might surprise us to hear is Jesus would agree with our non-Christian friends. He would agree. In fact, did you, do, you, do you know that in this passage, in verses 2 through 18, three different times I want you to hear what Jesus says. In verse 2, he'll say, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. In the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Three times in this passage, Jesus agrees with our non-Christian friends and their assessment about what is so often full in the church and warns us against hypocrisy. In fact, that word hypocrite is a word that in Jesus' time would have been borrowed from Greek theater. It literally is a word that means actor, right? And you, you put that together. What a good word Jesus uses to describe here it's a word that back in Greek drama you didn't have makeup to put on your face and so what you did was you put on a big mask sometimes from head to toe covered you completely and so you would go on stage parading and pretending to be someone you're not wearing a mask the whole time for the applause of the crowd and Jesus borrows that term actor and says that's what the Pharisees are the religious leaders they are parading around pretending putting on a religious show for the applause of others. Now, hear me, because I think in that is a good warning for us. If you've read through the Bible, particularly the New Testament, you've almost come to easily know that the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? They're the bad guys in the movie. And we know we're the good guys and we're not like the Pharisees, and we join on the team of hating the Pharisees. But do you know what's interesting? Do you know how the Pharisees began The Pharisees weren't priests. They they had no official office. What they were were just some lay people, meaning people like us, people like you, sitting in the pews. And what they saw around them was that nobody was taking the Bible seriously. And so a movement began, the Pharisaical movement, which was an attempt to take the Bible seriously and to live out practical religion. And so they wanted to do things like give to the poor because nobody was doing it. And pray, because no one was consistent in it. And fast, because no one was disciplined in it. And so they started a movement concerned for the Bible and taking it seriously and holiness. If that doesn't serve as a warning to us, I mean, that's how they started, and by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, they're the bad guys in the movie. So then, what a warning that despite our best intentions, we're just an inch away from doing what we do for the praise of man rather than the glory of God. We're just an inch away from playing religion and playing church and putting on a religious show. And so Jesus warns us because we're not immune. Beware. Watch out. Be on guard when you do spiritual things before other people in order to be seen by them. And we need to hear that because, friends, we do the same you need to hear that. I need to do, hear that because we do the same thing. I don't know about you, but when you read the Bible, at some times there are times where someone in those pages leaps out at you and you can really connect. You can almost see that's who I'd be in the story. For, for some of you, maybe it's a, a disciple like Peter, always putting his foot in his mouth, always, you know, quick, always ready to lead and charge, act first, think later. Some of you go, I get Peter. And maybe you have different people in the stories. I know without a shadow of a doubt who I would be in the Bible. I would definitely have been a Pharisee. I I know that. I know my story and my heart enough to know I would have been the guy who even maybe had deceived himself into thinking I'm doing this for God and just been a million miles away, putting on a show. If it were not for the grace of God bursting into my life and saving this self-righteous soul, that's exactly who I'd be. When I read this passage, I'll tell you the first story or narrative in my own life that came to my mind. I read, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And immediately, the first thing that came to mind is, I remember being a boy and staying over my cousin's house. And, and when you stay over your cousin's house, you have a sleepover. The point is you never sleep. That's the point of a sleepover. You just stay up. No one gets any sleep. You goof around. You play. You play. And all you want to do come 7 o'clock in the morning is, is, is sleep. And so I remember that his parents had this horribly annoying habit of praying in the morning and calling family prayer. And so what they do is they'd start singing from their room. And so all the kids were supposed to file into the room in time for family prayer. And now all the normal kids were just now starting to go to sleep. But as soon as I heard the singing, I'd run to their room. I'd sit down on the floor. And the reason was, at some point I heard a jay so good. And while the rest of the normal ones were just sort of waking their eyes, I was already there, singing with them. And, and hear me, as soon as I read this verse, all I kept thinking is, that's what my trajectory was. If the grace of God did not break into my life, that's who I was going to be, a showman to win the praise of people who was going to love God with my lips while my heart was a million miles away. And listen, we all do that. We all do that. Some of you close your eyes or don't close your eyes. Raise your hands or don't raise your hands when we sing because of what other people will think. It's like you can't escape the thought of what's my neighbor thinking of you in everything we do. Some of us give because, God forbid, what will it look like if we don't give? Some of us take communion because, God forbid, I don't walk down to the front. What are people going to think about me for this week? Some of us, some of you have been drawn to baptism because you needed to play the, the, the appearance because all your peers were getting baptized and you needed to put on a spiritual show as well. It's amazing the things we will do or not do Because we have this great concern of how we will appear before others. And so Jesus is warning us beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, three times in this passage, Jesus also says, You do this for people, you've got a reward. It's just not the reward you want. And it's not the reward you really need. Did you notice three times when he says, Don't be like the hypocrites, for they do this. And then he says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Don't pray like this, because truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Don't fast like this. Don't give like this, because truly I say to you, they've received their reward. That word reward there is actually a technical word that means you've been given a receipt. You've been paid in full. Right? Think of that. A receipt. Meaning, you did this for a reason. Well, you got paid. And nothing is left. You've been paid in full. Here's your receipt. Meaning, you have nothing waiting for you from the Father. There's nothing beyond that momentary clap from someone else. That's what you did it for. That's what you got. Truly, you've received your reward. You've been paid in full. Don't expect nothing from God. You didn't do this for Him. So there's nothing waiting with the Father... Nothing waiting in the future. Nothing waiting for you. You did this for the applause of man. The applause of man is exactly what you got. Truly, you have received your reward. Listen, when you and I play to the crowd, Jesus is saying, that momentary, gone, fickle, fleeting breath of a praise from someone, that's what you wanted. That's what you got. Nothing else. You think of that. You and I play to to the crowd, and the crowd is so fickle. They will praise you one moment and cast you down the very next. And if you live a life based on people's opinions of you, you're going to be like this share of stock that's constantly going up and down some points based on your latest performance. Because here's what people are. People are, what have you done lately? That's all we care. I, I was thinking about it. When we think of people, I think Philadelphia sports fans is the best example of that. I moved to the city. I love this city. This city is the most fickle sports city. Last week, we were watching the first two quarters of the the Eagles game. I got texts saying, get Napoleon Dynamite out of there. That's Nick Foles. Bench him. Bring Mark Sanchez. Fire the coach. By the end of the game, we're going to the Super Bowl, right? (laughs) This is our year, right? That's us. And Jesus is saying, that's who you are living your entire life before. That's who you're living your entire life before so that the moment they go awesome and you drink it in, poof, done. You blink and it's gone. And there is no reward for your Father in heaven waiting for you because you didn't do it for your Father in heaven. For truly, I say to you, you will have no reward. Truly, you have been paid in full. And so Jesus warns us, I think the principle that he's driving at for us is here. What you do for everyone to see, God will not see. And what you do for no one to see, God sees. Hear me again. What you do for no one, for for everyone to see, God neither sees nor remembers. But what you do for no one to see, God sees and will not forget. What you do for no one to see, God sees and he will not forget. Because he says over and over again, if you've prayed in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's what I want to do. I want to just end by asking just this one question for us to consider, which is why did the Pharisees do this? Or put it personally, why do we do this? Why do you do this? Why do I do this? I think for the sake of time, the simple answer is because you and I are obsessed with human approval. You and I are addicts. We're junkies. That's what we are. And what we do is our fix is someone thinking well of us. And we get high off of one compliment until that high wears off, and then we're itching for the next one. And we'll do whatever it can take to get the next compliment because we're fueled by human approval. I challenge you this week to just examine your heart and just begin asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? Or why am I not doing what I'm not doing? I'd ask you to just think through, how many times am I doing or not doing something motivated by what someone will think of me? I tell you, if you begin to monitor that, even in the slightest bit, you'll want to throw up as you begin to see how dominated your life is by someone else's opinion of you, by someone else's approval of you. And, and Jesus is saying, the, the problem underneath all of this is, you've got a God in your life, except his name is not Jesus. It's a lowercase g, and it's people. That's the real God you're really living for. right? God is someone we'd say, I want God more than anything else. I need God more than anything else. The worst thing would be to take away God. Well, just substitute human approval, and your life would say the same thing. I want human approval more than anything else. I need human approval above everything else. The worst thing to take away from me would be human approval. If that registers with you, all that God has shown you this morning is you've got a small G God in your life, an idol that you're living for. And that's your problem. And if that's our problem, what's the cure? The cure all throughout the Bible is always one thing. It's repentance and faith. We're sick, down to our soul. How do we get well? repentance and faith. Repent means I'm going one way, I turn. So repentance. That means today, if anything I've said registers on your heart, here's what you do. You say to God in your soul, Holy Spirit, I turn from worshiping what people think of me to worshiping Jesus. Would you help my heart to love Christ and value Christ more than the fickle and fleeting praise of human beings? Would you help my heart turn so that it actually cherishes Christ more than what people think or say? Would you turn the appetite of my heart so that I would value Christ's opinion of me over and above everyone else's? It's repentance, but it's also faith. And faith in what? And with this I'll end. In this passage, I think Jesus tucks away a clue for us of a way out of all of this. In this passage itself, right here, you don't have to go anywhere else, but verses 2 through 18, I think Jesus tucks in a word that he brings up over and over again as the cure for all of us people pleasers, all of us idolaters. If you'll hear it with me, in 6 verse 1, see if you catch it, from your father... Who is in heaven. 6 verse 4. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 6 verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 6 verse 8. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need. 6 verse 9. Pray then like this. Our father who is in heaven. And over and over again. In fact, ten times. You hear the word? Ten times. In this short passage, he keeps saying, father. You have a father. You have a father who sees you, who knows you, who you're praying to. You have a father. And I think the thing is, the hypocrite's problem is that they have not rightly understood or fully understood what it means to have God as my father. You see, the the hypocrite is insecure with God, and so he seeks security with man. He masks his insecurity with God by getting security from man, approval from man. And the gospel is the cure. The good news of Jesus Christ is the cure. Here's the cure. Jesus died and rose again so that all of us who repent and believe in him would become the children of God and God would be our father. And in God, in Christ, you have all the approval your soul desperately craves. You have all the affirmation that your soul desperately wants. In Jesus, you have been noticed. You have been seen. You have been discovered. You have been valued. You have been cherished. You have been found. In Jesus, everything that you want, God has done for you through Christ. Just think for a second of how the gospel is a cure for this. Look, we're scared to death that anyone would know the real us. That's why we put on a show. We put on a show because, God forbid, someone knows who I really am. If, if someone knew who I really was, then they would never value me, love me, treasure me, cherish me. And so I put on a show to act more holy than I am, more spiritual than I am, more mature than I am. I've got to put on a show because God forbid someone sees the real me. I read this author who gave this silly illustration. He said, for example, you're driving down, the radio's blasting, you're singing your lungs out, you're dancing and bobbing your head along, making a complete fool of yourself. A total stranger pulls up and you're mortified. Mortified. You're never going to see the person again. You're mortified. Why? Because it just hints at the danger we all feel intrinsically of being exposed. God forbid somebody saw the real us. And so we pretend and we play and we put on a show to cover up the real us. And the gospel comes and says, there's a father in heaven who knows you completely, knows you exactly as you are, knows everything about you, knows everything you've done. In fact, you've got things coming down the pike you're not even aware of, he knows those too. You've got sins, yet you don't even know about. He knows those too, and still loves you, absolutely cherishes you just the same. Loves you just as you are. In fact, in Christ, he is not going to love you one ounce more in heaven than he already does right now. You think of that. The future perfect you will not be an ounce more loved by God than right now you. And if you and I get that down to the deepest part of our souls then it suddenly starts to unlock, I don't have to put on a show. The highest opinion in the universe knows me exactly as I am, no pretense, and loves me. So then what am I going to put on a show for? Or or you think of this, you and I put on a show because we need someone's attention. Do you notice in the passage the lengths that the hypocrite goes to get someone's attention? Because the sad fact is nobody is thinking about you as much as you want them to. The sad fact is you're not on anyone's radar the way that you hope you are. You're not constantly fixed in someone's mind the way that you and I hope we are. And so the hypocrite goes to great lengths to draw attention because nobody's noticing him otherwise. Do you notice when he fasts, he looks gloomy so that somebody would pay attention. When he gives, he sounds the trumpet. Somebody would pay attention. When he prays, he finds a street corner that's populated and prays out loud so somebody would pay attention. And deep down, you and I put on a show to get somebody to notice us, to get somebody to be thinking about us, to put ourselves on somebody's radar so that we'd actually feel like we're worth something. And then the gospel comes and says, you have a Father in heaven who who is always thinking about you. You're never off his mind. Never gone off his radar. He never blinks. He never turns his gaze. He never gets distracted to look at something else. The the Bible will say, he calls out every night, every star by name. And then the next verse will say, why do you think he would forget about you? Do you hear that? Every one of the billion stars, every night he calls out by number and name. And the Bible then says, why then do you think he would forget you? He has not forgotten you. You have not escaped his mind. The attention, the notice that you're desperately seeking, you already have in God. And with one cure after another, the gospel, the good news of Jesus comes and says, you don't have to live anymore putting on a show because God notices and God loves just as you are. Everything your soul is longing for, it's in God. So repent. Turn from the things that you are right now seeking your fulfillment in to the living God. Confess your idolatry. I've got a lowercase g in my life, and I need to replace that with Christ so that he becomes more valuable and a treasure to me than anything else. I've tasted and seen that the permanent, secure standing I have with Christ is better than the fleeting good words of man. And have faith that what your heart is longing for, you have in God. So may the Spirit of God Himself convince us that He is infinitely better than all the other things we might seek. Let's pray.